The following episode contains deeply disturbing scenes of violence, murder, and sexual violence toward children. Parental discretion is advised. If the United States was a body, you might say the town of Villisca, in the southwest corner of Iowa, was its heart, located as it is in its upper torso, a little to the right of centre. As it sits prettily under a vast midwestern sky, between the middle and west Nodaway River, surrounded by endless acres of rich and fertile earth, Life in this modest-sized town has changed significantly, albeit subtly, since its heyday back in the early 1900s. Where once it boasted a bustling population of 2,500, over the years, the gradual modernization of the agricultural industry, on which most of the town's economy is based, has led to a steady decline in the numbers of personnel it employs. Today, the town's population sits a little closer to the 1300 mark. Regardless, though some of the paint on its main street buildings may be peeling and the brickwork crumbling, it remains a proud and tight-knit community that values its history and place in the world. A place no better epitomised than by the immaculately preserved early 20th century house that sits on the corner of 6th Avenue and 2nd Street, a typical home of any of the industrious, church-going families of the area, upon whose hard work and resilience the town was established. Certainly on the surface of it, this quaint, white, panel-walled, three-bedroom anachronism is perhaps the last place you might have expected an ambulance crew to find themselves late one night in November 2014 after reports that a man had been violently stabbed there. But how dark and deep are the many tendrils that lie beneath the surface of things? For the house of which I speak is no ordinary preserved property, but rather an ominous, singular place that back in June 1912 was the scene of one of the most brutal and inexplicable unsolved murders in American history. And it was there, on that peculiar night in November, just over a hundred years later, that 37-year-old Robert Lowson Jr. travelled on the hunt for answers, only to almost lose his life in the process. As Robert would explain some years later, as a keen ghost hunter with a particular fascination for the infamous Velisca murders, his mother and stepfather decided to buy him an overnight stay at the pretty white house on 6th and 2nd, which by then was a museum devoted to the history of the crime and its victims. That night, accompanied by his parents, Robert entered the property and immediately felt the weight of its grim history, made all the more potent by the efforts of the museum owners to model the interior exactly how it would have been on that infamous night back in June 1912. Robert, who'd come equipped with walkie-talkies, a tape recorder and a six-inch hunting knife, handed one of the radios to his parents and told them to start in the main bedroom upstairs. He would start downstairs in the parlour bedroom 
where two of the victims were found. Once inside the small, narrow room, he took a moment to position the bed, nightstand and dresser exactly how he believed them to have been on the night of the crime, and then switched off the light. Standing in the centre of the room, he lifted his head and cried out for the spirits to reveal themselves. Visions of the crime and how he imagined it played out flashed through his mind, and soon a rage rose inside of him. Unable to hold it back any longer, his words became coarser as he directed them solely toward the unknown culprit, telling them how dare they for doing what they did and that they should pay for their crimes. Then a crackle came through on the walkie-talkie. It was his mother from upstairs. Something was happening, she said excitedly. The room was filling with orbs. As Robert would go on to explain, he too saw an orb appear in the corner of the room that he was in, and then instinctively grabbed for his knife. From above, Robert's parents heard a piercing, anguished scream and raced down to find their son lying prostrate on the bed with the six-inch hunting knife now protruding from his chest. After nearly bleeding to death and being airlifted to Crichton University Medical Care in Omaha, Robert woke up the following day in a hospital bed with a tube down his throat, certain of only one thing. There was something deeply evil in that house, a darkness that he should never have provoked. Back when Velisca was just a nascent settlement on the banks of the Nodaway, its founders searched for a name that could best encapsulate the natural beauty of the surrounding countryside. They settled on the term Willisca from the language of the Native American Sauk and Meskwaki people. The men had been led to believe that the word translated to pretty place in English. What it actually meant was evil spirit. You're listening to Unexplained. And I'm Richard McLean Smith. It had been an unusually cool summer's day in Velisca, with a permanent threat of rain in the gathering clouds above, as Sarah Moore called to her husband Joe from the backyard of their home, a white panelled two up, two down on the northeastern outskirts of the town. It was Sunday. June 9th, 1912, and with the time just gone 7pm, the family was still to get ready for that evening's church service. 43-year-old Joe Moore, or Josiah to give him his full name, who seemed to be in a rather deep conversation with his neighbour Albert Jones, took a few more minutes, then finally peeled away from Albert and returned to the house. As a couple, the Moors were immensely popular and a cherished part of the community, with 39-year-old Sarah being the daughter of a prominent farming family and Joe running a farming implement store in town. Inside the house that evening, the couple's four children, 11-year-old Herman, 10-year-old Mary, 7-year-old Arthur and 5-year-old Paul, along with their friends 8-year-old Ina and 12-year-old Lena Stillinger, had little to do, having spent the morning at Sunday school 
already dressed in their finest church attire, white dresses and bows for the girls, and grey shorts and jackets for the boys. Joe found them all, busily putting on shoes and fixing their hair, as he made his way to the telephone to make a quick call to Ina and Lena's parents' farm. The girls had been due to spend the night at their grandmother's in town, but had decided it might be more fun to stay at the Moors' home instead. Joe wasn't able to reach their parents, but their sister Blanche promised to pass on the message. Then, after a quick brush of his hair, Joe joined the rest of his family in the parlour to begin the short three-block walk to the local Presbyterian church for a night of children's exercises. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. Is there something interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist. It's not a crisis line or self-help. It's professional therapy done securely online with a broad range of expertise that may not be locally available in many areas. You can log into your account anytime and send a message to your therapist. You'll get timely and thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so they make it easy and free to change therapists if needed. It's more affordable than traditional online therapy and financial aid is also available. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today and they have a special offer for unexplained listeners. Get 10% off your first month. Visit betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's betterhelp.com forward slash unexplained one zero. With the congregation arriving steadily in preparation for the event, all were greeted warmly by Reverend William J. Ewing and his wife Lenore, alongside one other, less familiar figure. The slight and mousy Reverend George Kelly, dressed also in black ministerial robes like Ewing, had arrived from the nearby town of Macedonia the day before and had been invited to Velisca by Ewing to observe that night's service. The 33-year-old Kelly, who came to the US from Kent in England with his wife Laura in 1904, was studying to be a Presbyterian minister at the Omaha Seminary and had gladly taken up Ewing's offer, which included a bed for the night at his home in the parsonage across the road. That evening, as the children sang their songs and recited scripture, Sarah and Joe watched on proudly alongside the rest of the parents, while Kelly watched on from the back, smiling pleasantly as the sweet sound of the children's voices echoed around the church. At roughly 9.45pm, Sarah and Joe were among some of the last to leave, as they exchanged pleasantries and goodbyes with fellow members of the congregation, before finally gathering the children and heading off back home. With the last of the congregation gone, Reverend Kelly escorted the Ewings and their four children back to the parsonage. At the time, the family was sleeping together in a tent in the garden due to an ongoing issue with Reverend Ewing's sinuses, while the rest of the family bedded down there for the night, 
The two reverends stayed up talking until sometime around 11pm when Ewing finally called it a night and retired to the tent while Kelly made his way to the guest room at the top of the house. It had just gone 4am early in the morning of Monday, June 10th, when Sarah and Joe's neighbour, Mary Peckham, got up from bed and quietly made her way to the kitchen. With daylight yet to break and only the stillness of the night for company, Mary lit the fire in the cooking stove, then stood back for a moment to enjoy the warmth of it before making a start on the day's laundry. Over the next few hours, Mary went back and forth from the house, washing and hanging the laundry in the yard as a large golden sun inched gradually higher into the sky. Over at the Moore house, however, the windows stayed resolutely dark. Like most in the farming trade, the moors were early risers. Certainly, Mary would have expected to see Joe heading off to work by 7am, but as the minutes continued to tick by, a strange stillness prevailed at their home. It was a few minutes later when the family's cows, in desperate need of milking, began to wail mournfully that Mary finally went over to investigate. Stepping onto the porch, she could see clearly that all the blinds and curtains had yet to be pulled back, but when she knocked on the door, she received no response from inside. She was just about to rap on the window when she remembered that Joe's father had recently been gravely ill. Perhaps the family had left hastily in the night to tend to him, she thought. And so, around 8am, Joe's sister-in-law, Jessie, received a call from Mary to ask if something had happened to Joe's father because the family didn't seem to be at home. But Jessie had heard no such news and quickly passed Mary's concern onto her husband and Joe's brother, Ross Moore, who was tending to the store he managed in town at the time. Ross, in turn, put a call in to Ed Selly, an employee of Joe's. Selly arrived at the Moors a short time later, and after knocking on the door to no avail, concluded that the family must have headed out somewhere at short notice. After making a quick check on the animals, Selly who had a number of errands to run for Joe that morning, then headed off, eager to complete them before his boss returned. But when news of Selly's visit got to Ross soon after, Joe's brother couldn't shake the feeling in the pit of his stomach that something was terribly wrong. Ross locked up the store, then hurriedly made his way to the house, After also getting no response from anyone inside, he cupped his hand to the glass but saw nothing beyond the thick material of curtains. By now, others had gathered in the street to see what all the commotion was as Ross tried one more time to get his brother's attention or anyone else in the house for that matter. Still hearing nothing from inside, he pulled a key from his pocket, placed it into the keyhole and turned the handle. The door eased open with a long, drawn-out creak, throwing pale light into the unsettling silence of the family's parlour room beyond. 
Dust moths floated in the air as Ross stepped forward, the sound of his shoes on the wooden floorboard reverberating loudly around the room. Ross called out for Joe and Sarah, but the words merely dissolved into the air. Looking back at the concerned face of Mary Peckham on the porch, he then turned to the parlour bedroom on his right, noticing that some kind of material had been placed over the window in the middle of it. He opened the door and proceeded inside. A dull, metallic odour struck him first as he stepped into the room. In the single bed that lay opposite against the far wall, two small, lumpen shapes could be discerned, lying under a bedsheet that looked almost black in the half-light, a single, pale white arm protruding from out of it. Ross cocked his head, waiting for a sign of life, as the horrifying realisation dawned on him. The bedsheet was saturated with blood. It was sprayed all up the wall, too. Ross stumbled back out onto the porch. Call the authorities, Mrs Peckham. Call them now, he said. City Marshal Hank Horton was promptly dispatched to the property. Moments later, he stood in the gloomy half-light of the parlour bedroom and lit a match to better observe the scene. Dear God, he said as he stepped closer to the bed, only noticing then how the blood had come from the head end of the victim's bodies. Then the match burned out suddenly, plunging the room back into darkness. Horton rushed to the windows and pulled back the curtains, flooding the room with light and revealing suddenly the grisly sight of the long-handled axe leaning against the opposite wall. Its blade clean, but its handle still sticky with blood and the faint wisps of human hair. And next to it, utterly incongruously, a two-pound slab of red, raw bacon wrapped loosely in a dishcloth. Horton retreated back into the parlour, then continued on into the kitchen, stopping at the foot of a narrow flight of stairs. Another match was struck, hissing and fizzling as it lit up the stairwell. Then Horton continued on up the stairs, each step creaking heavily as he went. Arriving quickly at the top floor, he stopped suddenly and listened for a moment, hearing nothing. He headed on into the master bedroom. The opening of the blinds revealed another grim scene, two larger bodies this time, lying under a heavily blood-soaked sheet, and in the bedroom across the hall, it was more of the same, four more bodies, smaller ones, spread out across three beds, also hidden under dark, burgundy-stained sheets. By shortly after 8am, news of the horrors at the Moore property had steadily filtered through to the town centre, where Frank Jones was overseeing the building of the First National Bank in the town square. As a former member of the Iowa House of Representatives, a banker and successful business owner, the 56-year-old Jones was one of the more prosperous members of the community and an acquaintance of the Moors, 
having once employed Joe. As such, it seemed only fitting that he would be one of the first to arrive at the Moors' home to offer his condolences to Ross and his brother Harry, who arrived soon after. The steadily growing group were then joined by a Dr Howe and the Reverend William Ewing, offering whatever help they could. Shortly before 9am, City Marshal Horton, who'd himself left to find a doctor, returned with Dr J. Clark Cooper in tow. Telling the others to wait outside, Horton then led Cooper into the house and into the first bedroom. Resisting every urge to turn away, Dr. Cooper stepped closer to the bed, took hold of the sheet and pulled it back. Of the two bodies lying underneath, the smallest was on its back closest to the wall in what might be described as a natural sleeping position, a small grey jacket placed over the face. Cooper grimaced as he pulled the sheet down further to reveal the head of the second body, which had been pulverised and split completely open at the top. The face was unrecognisable. This body lay completely differently, its arm dangling out to the side and the legs twisted round, suggesting to Cooper that the young victim had attempted to fight back. Cooper pulled back the grey jacket from the head of the other body and grimaced again. This head too had been pounded until it had split, with nothing but a lumpen, reddened mass for a face. Cooper turned to the two Bibles lying on the nightstand opposite the bed and thumbed open the front pages. On the inside of each, the owner's names were inscribed, Lena and Ina Stillinger. Heading up to the second floor, Cooper went first into the master bedroom and pulled back the sheet there to reveal the larger bodies of what he assumed to be Sarah and Joe Moore. He gasped again at the sight of them. The sheet and pillows were completely saturated with blood that had also sprayed out in a violent mess up the wall to the back and side. Of Joe's face, it too had been pulverised with its two protruding cheekbones, the only visible feature. The eyes had been scythed out with the blows and the rest were completely caved in. Bone splinters covered the pillow, while bits of brain could also be seen, having been chopped out of the top of his head. Sarah's body was in much the same condition. In the bedroom opposite, Dr. Cooper found the Moore's children, all murdered just like the others, with their heads smashed and their bodies covered over with the sheets. Just after 9am, County Coroner Dr. Linquist arrived to inspect the scene. Starting like the others in the parlour bedroom, Linquist noted first how the two Stillinger girls had been killed with mainly blows from the blunt end of an axe. Then pulling off the rest of the sheet, he found something unexpected. Lena's nightgown had bunched up around her waist, revealing her naked body underneath, with a spot of blood on the inside of her thigh. 
while one arm hung out of the bed, the other was extended above her head, resting on the pillow, which had led Dr. Cooper to assume that she'd fought back against the killer, but Linquist wasn't so sure. Though the girl didn't appear to have been raped, the coroner couldn't shake the feeling that there was far more to all this than just a brutal slaying of innocence. Turning to examine the room, he noted then that the mirror on the dresser had likely been deliberately covered up by the killer, just like the window in the door, and both with the same material, a dress of Sarah's that had been hurriedly ripped in half. A kerosene lamp had also been placed at the foot of the bed, with its chimney removed, which again was likely put there by the killer. Looking at the axe, it took him less than a minute to confirm it as the murder weapon, but as for why there was a two-pound slab of bacon lying next to it, he couldn't be sure. Then Linquist saw Lena's underwear that had been discarded under the bed and on which the killer had wiped their blood-stained hands. The girl hadn't fought back, he thought. She'd been deliberately placed like that, exposed for the killer to see. What makes a murderer's mind tick? Killer Psyche is a true crime podcast from Wandry that explores these types of questions about the crimes that killers and criminals commit. Killer Psyche covers high-profile cases that shocked the world, and host Candice DeLong uses her five decades of experience as a clinical psychiatric nurse and FBI criminal profiler to dissect the motivations and behaviours of the most terrifying felons in history. And you'll definitely want to listen to a recent episode of Killer Psyche, where Candice looks into the mysterious murder of Ted Ammon, a wealthy Wall Street financier. Ted had been going through a divorce with his wife of 13 years, Jenna Rosa, and child custody and millions in assets were at stake. Jenna Rosa and her new boyfriend, Danny Pelosi, were the prime suspects, but Jenna Rosa died of cancer before police could prove her involvement. In 2004, Danny was convicted of second-degree murder, but still maintains his innocence. How does hatred drive a person to murder the father of their children? Listen to Killer Psyche on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or you can listen to One Week ad-free by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app. Moving into the main house, Linquist took note of how clean the place was, There were no bloody footprints or handprints anywhere. In the kitchen, however, a large bowl of bloody water had been left out, he presumed used by the killer to wash their hands. Then Linquist turned his attention to the bodies upstairs. Unlike with Lena Stillinger, there was no sign of any resistance or abuse of the Moore children, with all killed quickly and presumably more or less silently since none appeared to have awoken during the horrific ordeal. The same appeared to be true of Sarah and Joe, but here, Linquist found significant differences, mainly in the manner of their mutilation. Both had been hacked at far more than any of the other victims. A shoe that had been knocked over close to their bed, spilling blood from inside it onto the floor that had needed time to fill up there, suggested the murderer 
had even come back to mutilate them further, having already killed them, the apparent intention being the complete removal of their faces. Where the others had been struck five to ten times, for Sarah and Joe, it was closer to thirty. Indentations in the ceiling above the bed, presumed to be from the backswing of the axe, were testament to the wild brutality that had been meted out. After finishing up in the house, Dr. Lindquist made his way to the family barn. He wasn't entirely sure what he was looking for, but eventually found himself in the hayloft, where he noticed a relatively fresh pile of hay that had been dumped next to some neatly stacked bales in the corner. Moving closer to investigate, he saw what appeared to be the pattern of a body in the straw, as if someone had recently been lying there, and at the end where the head and shoulders would have been, Linquist noticed a hole in the wall. Bending down to peer through it, he could see perfectly a completely unobstructed view of the house. Having supervised the initial analysis of the crime scene, City Marshal Horton placed a night watchman outside the property to guard it, then made his way to Villisca's City Hall to meet with Montgomery County Sheriff Jackson to discuss the next steps. The 49-year-old Horton had lived most of his life in or near Villisca, and up until that day had spent most of his time as City Marshal, collaring petty criminals and pulling drunks off the street. In fact, Horton had only been in the job a year when the Moore and Stillinger murders took place, having worked the previous few years as a night patrolman, and before that, as a farmhand. In short, he was woefully out of his depth. Though Sheriff Jackson had seen a little more of the world, most notably trying his luck in Alaska during the 1890 gold rush, his primary responsibility was overseeing the town jail and making sure the relevant paperwork was up to date. It didn't help either that due to the system at the time, there was no state police or criminal investigative agency set up to deal with crimes of such complexity and magnitude. As such, the state had to rely on private detective agencies if they wanted to crack the case. At City Hall, it was agreed to give Detective Thomas O'Leary from the Kirk Detective Agency a first go at finding the culprit. Horton also suggested bringing in bloodhounds, but worried that it might be too expensive. Then Frank Jones spoke up. As a significant figure of the community, Jones had taken it on himself to join Horton and Jackson at City Hall. Frank told Horton not to worry about the cost. Whatever it was, he would make sure it was covered. Horton returned to the Moors' home late in the afternoon to find it completely full of people, with as many as 50 to 100 believed to have poked around the crime scene before the Villisca National Guard were eventually called in to take control of the situation. A short time later, the first posses from the National Guard set out on the hunt for clues, searching homes and outbuildings, hoping to find footprints, scraps of clothing, or maybe even the killer themselves, but little of note was discovered. It was just after 9pm when the bloodhounds arrived. 
Using the axe to scent them from inside the house, the dogs immediately set off through the front door, pulling hard on their leads as they travelled west, all the way to the banks of the West Nodaway River, only to hit a bank of heavy bushes where they quickly lost interest. As news of the killing spread throughout the county, many naturally began to wonder as to who could possibly do such a thing. But when darkness finally came round again, petty gossip turned to abject fear at the thought of a deranged killer that was quite possibly still very much among them. Local stores quickly sold out of padlocks, while those who didn't own guns raced into town to purchase one. Later in the afternoon, Coroner Dr Linquist convened the coroner's jury and led the members round the house to inspect the crime scene. Then at 10pm, County Attorney Ratcliffe arrived and gave word finally for the local undertakers to take the bodies away. Each was carried carefully one at a time, then placed on a buggy and wheeled out of the house to gasps and cries from the many who'd gathered outside drawn there inexorably by a collective morbid fascination. It was sometime around 2am, with the bodies having been delivered to a temporary morgue at the town fire station, that armed guards were placed at each of the two doors, and one by one, the onlookers dispersed. That evening, families stayed up all night, sat with lamplights on and loaded guns across their laps, their doors and windows heavily barricaded shut. Those who lived alone stayed with friends, and few ventured out into the dark to use outhouses, while virtually no one got any sleep at all. In the days to come, some would attest to seeing Reverend Ewing's guest of the night before, Reverend George Kelly, depart that morning from Velisca train station on the 0519, Later in the afternoon, having arrived back home in Macedonia, many would be especially struck by how obsessed he seemed by news of the crime. Some even claimed they'd heard him discussing the murders much earlier in the day, earlier, in fact, than when the bodies were first discovered. But all that was yet to come. You've been listening to Unexplained Season 6, Episode 12, A Darkness on the Edge of Town, Part 1 of 3. Part 2 will be released next Friday, April 8th. If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help support us, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplainedpod to sign up. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod.com and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplained podcast.